What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and mindset optimization, while making sure to not lose sight of the practical and applicable side of things. I'm your host, Jordan Lips, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in. I appreciate you. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. What's up guys, welcome back to the show. Today we are doing a Q&A episode and I pulled these questions off of my weekly check-in form that I sent to my online coaching clients. And the question was, what's a fitness or nutrition topic that you'd like some clarification on? So I took three really good questions. I know you guys are gonna love it. The first question, we seem to be doing a lot of different rep ranges. Is there a best rep, uh, best rep range for muscle growth? That's my goal. Cool, great question. The truth is when your sets are taken close to failure, Sets of six reps all the way up to 30 reps have been shown to be equally hypertrophic. They've been shown to produce equal muscle growth. Now, does that mean that sets of six and sets of 30 are exactly the same and we should just do whatever and doesn't matter at all? No, but it definitely means we can stop obsessing over a perfect rep range and really remind ourselves, hey, as long as my sets are hard, close to failure, I'm good. Now, what is close to failure? probably within three or four reps of failure. So as long as your sets are within three or four reps of failure, as long as your sets are hard enough, you can be pretty damn sure that regardless of the rep range, you're building muscle. Now, if sets of six and sets of 30 aren't the same, when would it be a good idea to do one over the other? Now, you might get some different answers depending on who you ask this question, but I feel like the most important factor on deciding where you should be in the rep range for hypertrophy is exercise selection. The truth is certain exercises are going to work better for you in certain rep ranges. Think about doing a 20, 30, 20 to 30 rep deadlift. Shit, your technique or assisting muscles or cardio or focus, that's gonna break down before any of the target muscles actually reach a point of tension where it causes hypertrophy. Think of a five to 10 rep lateral raise. Dear God, sounds terrible. My neck hurts. My, I'm just flinging the weight up. Do, I don't have no mind-muscle connection. Do I feel it in my delts? I don't know. I feel it in my soul. Those exercises are probably better done swapped. Your deadlift is probably done better in that five to 10 rep range for hypertrophy where you can really use an adequate amount of weight and stimulate the right muscles and and take those muscles close to failure instead of taking your t technique and your assisting muscles and your cardio and your focus to failure. As far as the lateral raise, you might find that when you do laterals in the 10 to 20 rep range, you get a great pump, great mind-muscle connection, great metabolic stress, right? Great lactate buildup, great burn in the muscle. That's probably where you should do them because at the end of the day, you doing lateral raises in that five to 10 rep range, yes, theoretically, if it's taken close to failure, you're gonna get equal hypertrophy. But when you do that set and you're and you put the dumbbells down, you're like, what the fuck did I even just do? I didn't feel anything. It just hurt. My elbows hurt, my neck hurts, my soul hurts. Like use that intuition, use that feeling, use that biofeedback to navigate which exercises are better in which rep ranges. Chances are muscles that are more technically demanding, squats, deadlifts, chin-ups, with more joints and more muscles are probably better in that, I don't know, five to twelve rep range. And isolation movements, using less joints and less muscles, probably better outside of that five to 10 rep range, in that 10 to 30 rep range. I mean, imagine imagine doing a five rep barbell skull crusher. You're out of your fucking mind. My elbows are killing me just thinking about it. 
So use your intuition, understanding that yes, as long as my sets are between six and 30, I'm getting good muscle growth. But did I feel it in the target muscle? Did that muscle limit me? Was that target muscle the limiting muscle? Did I get a good mind muscle connection? Did I get a good pump? Did I get any metabolic stress? Like use that intuition to guide you. And you might find that, you know, you were doing uh, leg presses in the five to 10 rep range. And, you know, because you, you thought, okay, this is a big muscle group. Let me do it in the heavy rep range. But you might find that in the 10 to 20 rep range, Jesus Christ, my quads get a great pump. My quads are the limiting factor. And I want you guys to think that there's no perfect right answer. I want you to use some trial and error and find out, hey, where do I really feel this exercise? At what rep range do I get a really great set? Not just about going through the motions, not just checking a box, but where do I feel it really well? Where can I really make it the limiting muscle? And then go from there. Some practical take-homes in terms of rep ranges is maybe 50% of your reps should be in that 10 to 20 rep range, 25% in the five to 10, 25 in the 20 to 30. And of course, those are just general guidelines and you should take a look at what exercises you're doing. Ask yourself, where might they be most practical? Where are they gonna be most effective for me? And it's gonna be different for the individual. Sure, there are some general guidelines like that 20 to 30 rep range probably isn't good for anybody and the five to 10 rep lateral raise probably isn't good for anybody. But there's gonna be inter-individuality between people. So don't you know, see something on the internet and think, oh, I have to do it in that rep range. Also, another take home, Again, if an, exercise is used, if an exercise uses a lot of muscles and joints and or is very technical, it's probably gonna be better in that lower rep range. And for isolation movements, probably gonna be better in the higher rep range, in that 10 to 30 rep range. It just, it's gonna be more practical. It's probably gonna be more practical, but don't take my word for it. Do a little self-study, do a little uh, trial and error and see how things go. So the second question is, how long should I be in a deficit before taking a prolonged break? And I wanna highlight the words prolonged break because this question is not asking, how long should I be in a deficit before taking a one to two week diet break? This question is asking, how long should my cutting phase be before I take a prolonged phase at maintenance? Now, I wanna keep in mind, we're talking about time actually spent in a deficit. Not, I've been trying to lose weight for like 20 weeks now and it's just not happening. I haven't seen the scale move. You know. When in reality, some weeks you're in a deficit, some weeks you're not, you're not really doing it. Now I'll admit, trying to lose weight is psychologically exhausting, fatiguing, and at some point you should take a break uh, 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 to give your mind and body a breather before trying again. However, these parameters I'm about to discuss are within the context of time actually spent in a deficit. Time actually spent losing you know, 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week. So a good rule of thumb for cutting phase length is about eight to 12 weeks, maybe 16 weeks in some cases if you're using diet breaks more often. Um, and an additional constraint would be you should probably take a break every time you lose about 10% of your body weight within a phase. Now, why? Why do you need to take a break? Well, the, a more overarching reason why you would want to take a break. Well, a more overarching reason why you would want to take a break, a more general reason, is that by taking breaks, you'll allow your body to re-regulate to some degree at a new normal so that the following diet phases, if you want to continue cutting, will be much, much easier. So what happens across a diet phase? Well, the longer you're in a deficit, the more diet fatigue, both psychological and physiological, you will accrue. What does that look like? Well, it looks like poor sleep, 
looks like increase in stress hormones like cortisol, increase in hunger, obviously increase in cravings, decrease in satiety, increase in food focus, uh, an increase in metabolic adaptation, which usually comes in, in a decrease in NEAT, and a performance decline. And all of that's pretty bad stuff. And yes, the goal is fat loss, so you're going to deal with some of this because the juice is worth the squeeze. But the longer you're in a deficit, the more this stuff's going to come on. And eventually, you're going to want to get out of that deficit before it comes on too strong. So, quick recap. You're going to want to be in a cutting phase for about 8 to 12 weeks, losing about 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week, maybe 16 weeks if you've been using diet breaks more frequently. An additional constraint would be every time you lose about 10% of your body weight in a cutting phase, you should probably take a maintenance phase. Now, how long is that break? How long is that maintenance phase while we're on the topic here? It, a good rule of thumb is probably just as long as your cutting phase was. So if you've been cutting for 12 weeks, it's probably a good rule of thumb to take a 12-week maintenance break. And that maintenance break is meant to, as much as possible, undo the consequences that we talked about before, right? Poor sleep, increase in hormones, hunger, cravings, food focus, metabolic adaptation, performance decline. We want to undo that as much as possible. We want to get your body to back to baseline. Back to feeling really great, psychologically, physiologically. We want to make sure that if you want to cut again, that you're in a really great place to do so. Because if you continue cutting beyond that 12-week mark, beyond that 16-week mark, depending on diet break usage, you're going to see these things come on quicker and quicker and quicker and a steeper, steeper, steeper in terms of symptoms. And what a lot of people will do is maybe around that 12-week mark, things are going all right. You know, you're still losing a little bit of weight. And instead of taking a break, we get addicted to the progress. We get addicted to the scale continuing to go down. And instead of doing the smart thing, which would be to hit the pause button and allow our body to as much as possible re-regulate to this new normal, we keep pushing. We keep pushing. We keep pushing. And all too often, what happens when you keep pushing is you set yourself up because these symptoms come on so strong for weight regain. Your cravings are through the roof. Metabolic adaptation is so low. Your metabolism is lower than you want it to be. Your workouts suck. You're not sleeping. Your cortisol's through the roof. Like that is not a good combination for a successful fat loss or a successful life. So taking that break will allow you to re-regulate at normal so you can have a good future cutting session down the road if that's what you want to do. Now, I will say that if you... Uh, we could put a minimum at about two-thirds of the time you were in a deficit. So between two-thirds and one time of the cutting phase, you'll want to be in a maintenance phase. Now, if you go way less than this, if you do a 12-week cut and you take a two-week break and you feel great, maybe you feel good after two weeks, which is highly unlikely. Usually it takes about four weeks to start feeling good again, start feeling like your old self, good energy, good sleep, good workouts. Let's say you feel okay after two weeks and you hop right back into a deficit. All of those symptoms, maybe you feel good, right? Maybe you sleep's okay, you hunger's back to, you know, you're feeling all right, and you jump right back into a deficit. All of those symptoms are gonna come on a whole lot quicker because you weren't really back at baseline. Maybe you felt okay, but you weren't really back at back at baseline. So if you go way less than this, you'll see those diet symptoms come up way sooner in your next cut. I'll also say the these maintenance phases become more important the more cycles of cutting that you do. The more often you cut, and the more you do uh, consecutive cutting phases, the more important and probably the longer these cutting uh, these maintenance phases should be to make sure you're re-regulating at a new normal. The further you're getting away from your starting body weight, the more you need to be telling your body, hey, we're not going back. Hey, this is our new normal. Hey, here's where we are at maintenance. So quick recap, 
eight to 12 week cutting phase, maybe 16 if you're using diet breaks more often. Uh, we want to avoid ever increasing diet fatigue and a metabolic and metabolic adaptation, both physiological and psychological. After that, probably spend between two thirds and one times as long as you were in the cut at maintenance before starting again, if that's what you want to do. At the end of the day, I know some of you are listening thinking, damn, that's really going to drag this out. I promise doing things the right way, even if it takes a little longer, is worth only having to do it once. A lot of people struggle because they have a timeline that they've made up in their head and they need to sprint there. I promise if you have more than 20 pounds to lose, start to wrap your head around the fact that you're not doing it in one spurt. You're not doing it in one phase, take a diet break, do it again. You're going to have to break it up in chunks and not just have to, but it's going to make the dieting phases easier. You're going to feel better in each diet phase. You're going to feel great in those maintenance phases. And instead of yo-yo dieting for, you know, two to 20 years, we can get this thing done in a much shorter period of time, although it probably feels longer in the moment. Now, the third question, how much protein can I absorb in a meal? Is it okay if I have two large meals or should I split it up into four meals? Now, the myth is, quote, you can, your body can only absorb 20 to 30 grams of protein per meal. Well, let's just, let's just nip that in the butt right now. Your body has an unlimited ability to absorb amino acids. So it's already busted. If you eat 100 grams of protein, your body will use all 100 grams of that protein. Where this myth comes from is the truth that, you know, what, what people are actually referring to when they say this is how much protein per meal can actually be used for muscle protein synthesis. Muscle protein synthesis, synthesis meaning the creation of, right, is building new muscle. So there is a cap on how much protein per meal your body can use for building new muscle, for muscle protein synthesis. So there is something to that, and we're going to dive into it. So the truth is, eventually you'll hit a ceiling, right? There will be a certain amount of protein beyond which won't be used for muscle protein synthesis. So from a muscle building perspective, yeah, maybe there's a cap. What does that cap look like? Well, it's probably something between 20 and 40 grams of protein, of high quality protein per meal. Now, where you fall on that spectrum, 20, 40, maybe a little bit more, depends on a few things. First and foremost, the quality of the protein. Because we don't just want any protein. We need proteins that have an adequate amount of an amino acid leucine, which is crucial when it comes to stimulating MPS, muscle protein synthesis. Well, which proteins are high in, in leucine? Animal proteins. For the most part, all animal proteins have an adequate amount of leucine that you can probably do well in that, in that 20 to 40 range and just be totally fine. Lots of plant sources are low in leucine, except for things like soy, tempeh, seitan, and vegan protein powders. So it's not to say that if you're a vegan that you can't get enough leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and that you, know, you can't build muscle. That's not true. But when you cut out an entire food group, it's going to take more planning, which means if you are a vegan listening to this, make sure that you're getting enough complete proteins if building muscle is your goal. Soy, tempeh, seitan, vegan protein powders, all are going to have enough leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis where you're not going to really have to obsess over getting more protein. Now, if you're getting protein from things like brown rice or beans, incomplete protein sources, I know that if when you combine those two that they become a complete protein source, they have all the essential amino acids, but 
stay with me here. Um, if you're getting your proteins from incomplete sources and other plant sources that are low in leucine, you'll actually need to eat more total protein, right? So if you have less leucine in the protein, we're gonna need more of it to get to that same number. So you might need to err on the higher side, which is also ironic because those foods are actually low in protein per calorie. So you will have to eat a lot of calories, which is why it's probably best for vegans to also prioritize whole protein sources, complete protein sources, like the ones we just mentioned. Where you fall in that 20 to 40 range also depends on the size of the person, right? Like 110 pound Becky doesn't need the same amount of protein per meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis as 250 pound, you know, bodybuilder. They're very different sizes. They have very different levels of muscle mass. They're going to need level, different levels of protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So you have more weight, more muscle means more protein per meal to maximize that muscle protein synthetic response. A good rule of thumb for those of you guys that are really number driven is around 0.4 grams per kg of protein per meal. So 0.4 grams of protein per kg of body weight or what is that? 0.18 grams per pound of body weight for the upper limit. So remember, that's the upper limit. That's not a minimum. Now, another another factor that will affect the amount of protein it takes to stimulate muscle protein synthesis is age. As you get older, 50, 60, 70, there is some level of what's called anabolic resistance, which is the reduced stimulation of muscle protein synthesis to a given dose of protein. So you'll need AKA, you'll need more protein to get the same muscle protein synthetic response as you did maybe 20 years ago. So as we age, protein gets even more important. You're gonna need more protein per meal, per bolus, to get the same MPS response. So what are the take-homes? Like, let's sum it up here. This is a myth. Your body doesn't have a limit on how much it can absorb per meal, right? You can absorb an unlimited amount of amino acids per meal. Your body's gonna figure out what to do with it. However, there is a cap in terms of how much of that protein is going to be used for MPS, for building new muscle. A good rule of thumb is around 20 to 40 grams of high-quality protein. Now, where you fall on that is probably going to be determined on, again, the quality of the protein, the size of the person, and age. If your goal is maximizing muscle, what does this mean? It means that if you're eating 200 grams of protein per day, you're probably gonna do better with four meals of 50 grams or five meals of 40 grams or six meals of 33 grams or whatever it is than you would with one or two meals of 100 or 200 grams of protein. Now, while that's absolutely mechanistically true, that if you're looking to maximize muscle growth, you're gonna do better with four to six pulses of muscle protein synthesis, four to six meals where you're maximizing that protein response than one to two meals, Anecdotally and in some studies, it's probably not something to obsess over. You can probably build a really great body, a really great physique, build a ton of muscle with less, with one or two meals per day. You can. But if your goal is, and, and as you get more advanced, it probably should be, to turn all the knobs that you can, having more frequent stimulus, uh, stimulating muscle protein synthesis more often throughout the day is definitely a good idea. Now, again, for you numbers folk, Something like 0.4 grams per kg of body weight or 0.18 grams per pound of body weight is probably a good upper limit for maximizing that MPS response. And maybe on the higher end again, if you're really big or older or you're using an incomplete plant protein source. 
So I hope that helps, guys. These were three really great, great questions that I get quite a bit. And I don't want you to feel like eating one or two meals per day means you're screwed, you can't build muscle. Total protein for the day is still going to be the most important thing. If you're eating 80 grams of protein per day, which is probably very little, instead of me focusing on as a coach, hey, let's break that up into X many meals so that we can maximize MPS. Like I'm gonna try and just get your total protein up because a lot of times getting your total protein up is going to mean better MPS over the course of the day, uh, regardless of when it's broken down. So I don't want this to be something you obsess over. But if your goal is to eke out every inch of gains and you're thinking, yeah, I'll just have one meal per day, chances are you're gonna do better with more, you know, something like four to six uh, pulses of protein. And one last thing I'll say on that is, where do we normally see this one to two meal situation? A lot of times it's with people who do intermittent fasting. So one of the cases against intermittent fasting for maximizing muscle growth is you're not getting as many meals evenly spaced throughout the day. Now, again, mechanistically, this makes perfect sense. And if you are trying to maximize muscle growth, I do hope you heed this advice. And you know, if you want to intermittent fast, at least have a protein shake in the morning. And we don't need to dive too deep into that whole organization. But if you're going to intermittent fast, maybe have a protein shake in the morning so that you can get more pulses of protein throughout the day. And again, if you do intermittent fasting and you really don't feel like fucking doing that, chances are you can still build a really great physique. Just make sure you're having, you know, two meals a day and you're getting at least 0.8 to 1.5 grams per pound of protein total across the day. And things over time will probably be fine as long as you're training hard. Again, hope that helps guys. And uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram, or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com, or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.